Today, we are diving back into our series, Before and After. Uh, We're looking at a few key passages in the New Testament, especially ones that use the word but as a sort of hinge word to say, that was then, but this is now. Religion and circumstances and all that kind of have their say, but God, but God has other plans, amen? So, we're asking, what does it mean to move out of the old covenant way of thinking, the old covenant way of looking at things into the new covenant, and into a way that also still learns from the God who gave us the old covenant. This is the beauty of following Jesus is he helps us unpack all of this in community. And we spend our whole lives learning from Jesus, even how to better read our Bibles. So we're learning some of that too. Uh, First of all, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. In a little while, in a few minutes, we'll turn over to Ephesians, and then we're going to finish up today with communion. We're going to take communion together. If you are at home right now, and you're watching this from home, you're welcome to take communion with us. Just grab some bread or some juice there in your very own home. Okay, here we go. So Genesis 12 starts off by saying this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Later, God would change his name to Abraham. Abram, that means exalted father, father exalted. And Abraham would mean father of multitudes. And so, but right now he's still Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. And I'll make your name great. Well, this is wonderful news. This is great. Wonderful. But then look at what he goes on to say. So that you will be a blessing. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. God is always calling us to to be blessed, yes, but then to be a blessing. Amen? This is the MO of God. This is just how he does things. It's how he works. He says, I'm going to bless you, but that's never the end goal. That's never just the end goal. He says, then I will partner with you. That's what he tells us today too right? So God starts out with us in like face-to-face intimacy, but what God is always looking for is to move to like shoulder-to-shoulder partnership. That's where he wants to move us, right? And so that we will go out and be a blessing together is very important. If, If our whole idea of spiritual formation, if our walk of faith ends with face-to-face intimacy, well, we're, our, our growth is stunted, right? We're kind of only doing half the relationship. Face-to-face intimacy is a beautiful thing. But if that's where we stop, our, our spiritual formation, our, our, our growth in our faith is stunted. And by the same token, if you only have, you know, you're only working and out there doing and you're partner to partner with God and doing things like that, but you have no face-to-face intimacy, well, your spiritual formation is going to be starved, right? Because that's not, there's nothing fueling you. So we have to have both. We are blessed to be a blessing. Verse 3, he says this, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. It's interesting, the bless, he, he, it's, in, uh, it's a plural there that I will bless all the ones, all the ones who, who bless you, I'm going to bless. And then he says the one, it's in the singular, that I curse. And there's a lot of discussion about who is that one? Is it a particular person that is going to be a roadblock in Abraham's life? Is it uh, whoever it is? And in you, All the families of the earth shall be blessed. He goes back to plural there. All the families, and that word is all the all the tribes, all the people groups, all of the ethnos, everybody, all of the peoples shall be blessed in you. So through Abraham and through this simple relationship of trust, God has this goal of blessing everyone. Now, God could have just gone and blessed each person, he could appear to each person on the planet, right? Individually, he could have appeared to each one of us on the planet and blessed them directly. Uh, But God values partnership. He values partnership. He does things together with his people. And it's a slow road, right? That's not the quick way to do things. It's not efficient at all. But it's more relational, which is the heart of God. And this right here is just like God 101, right? To understand Yahweh 101, he will always sacrifice efficiency for relationship. He is always about the relationship. So he partners with Abraham and he says, here's the end goal. Yeah, we're going to grow this, this nation through Israel, but the end goal of that is to bless all the people of the earth, okay? Now let's turn over to chapter 15 
God comes back to Abram and he gives him a little more detail, starting at verse 1. He says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. By the way, isn't it so cool? Notice in chapter 12 and chapter 15 here, God appears to Abram. And both times, he just talks to him like a friend. There's no covenant here. Abram hasn't done. He hasn't jumped through any hoops. Abraham hasn't gone to church, right? He hasn't done anything. He he just talks to God. He doesn't have to go to the priest. You know, there's no priest that acts like an in-between conduit. It's just Abraham talking to God, and God talks to him. And Abraham is, is responding by trusting in what God, his friend, is saying. So God says this, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. Your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord God. So Abraham, God God is promising him these things. And Abraham, he's a little tentative here. He says, God, you know, I I just, I'm childless. Uh, You say I'm going to produce a nation out of me. I don't have a child here, you know. I've got this one child who's like, I I had through the slave uh, he's referring to Ishmael here. Uh, you know, I'm going to give him my inheritance and adopt him. Is that how this is all going to work? Which, by the way, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about this idea of accommodation. This is like one of those messed up places where Abraham's going, yeah, so I slept with our servant women, woman and I had a child with them and she's a slave and so is that how it's going to work? Uh, and you got to think like this is where God's just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> like where do we start here? We've got slavery. We've got the imbalance of gender hierarchies here. You know, just sexual uh, just injustice here. He's gone outside the marriage. God says, no, no. I'm going to give you a child with your wife. He says, but verse 4. But the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, Ishmael. He says, I'm going to give you a child. <clears throat> One of my favorite passages right here, he says, uh, he brings him outside the tent and he says, look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to count them. And I just love that scene. Can you, I mean, because this is 2000 BC. There's not much light pollution going on here. There is a lot of stars in the Middle East in 2000 BC to count here. What a beautiful expanse and what an impossible task too. By the way, he just, he's like one, two. And when he gets to like a million, he loses count. He's got to start over again. Finally, he says to him, so shall your descendants be, right? And he reiterates his promise to Abram. Then look at verse six. Verse 6, this is one of the hinge passages for for the entire history of humanity. Verse 6 of Genesis 15 shows us something very fundamental about what God desires from us, how God desires us to connect, he wants to connect with us. And God tells Abraham these things. It says this, Abraham believed the Lord. He believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness or credited it to him. He counted it. He's like, we're going to call that righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. That's it. He believed. He believed. The same Hebrew word or the, or the Greek word in the New Testament is translated faith or trust. He believed. Literally, he just trusted God. It doesn't say he was like an especially moral man. (laughs) He just believed. And God says, that's all good. That's the righteousness that I'm looking for. I'm crediting righteousness to you. You're you're never going to qualify on your own, Abraham, right? I will make you fit for a relationship with me. All I'm asking for is your trust. Just trust that it's true. You know, that's the foundation for friendship. It's trust, right? You don't have a friend that you can't trust. Uh, And it's really that simple. And God takes care of the rest. This is happening, by the way, way before Jesus comes on the scene. But it's already revealing the shadow of Jesus. It's revealing God's heart. 
and how he wants to relate to us. And then God gives him some more information in verse 7. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Okay, so they've just had this wonderful, beautiful moment. It says, Abraham believed the Lord. The Lord credited it to his righteousness. But now Abraham says something interesting. He says, oh, Lord God, yeah, how am I to know that I shall possess it? <laughs> so this is interesting, right? Right after his confession of faith comes his confession of doubt. It just said, he believed, the Lord credited his righteousness. Yeah, he's a father of the faith. Right after this, he confesses his faith. Now he confesses his doubt. Verse 6, he believes God. Verse 8, he's still questioning. He's like, I trust you, but can you prove it? I mean, really. I mean, I trust your God and all, but like, give me a little, like, how do I know you're not just pulling my leg? How do I know? I mean, really, how can I know? It's like I believe, but help my unbelief. The way the the dad in the New Testament of the little kid said to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. And he wants evidence, which is actually, when you think about it, a bit less than fully trusting, doesn't it? Right? But here's the good news. God accepts the faith that we offer even when it's accompanied by doubt. He accepts the faith we offer. Now listen to me. I, I, I want to, all of you natural born skeptics out there, I'm going to talk to you for a second. Those of you who are like, got the gift of faith, just check your phones for a little bit. I want to talk to the skeptics out there because you're my people. Doubt does not discredit faith. I'm going to, I'm going to remove some condemnation from some of you today. Doubt does not discredit faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Sometimes, in fact, doubt is kind of like a, a subcategory of faith. Um, sometimes uh, we, we come to God with our doubts, and yet we still move forward with him. Why? Because we're people, right? We're this big compared to him. So, of course, we come to him with doubts. Of course, of course, we come to him because he's the father He's invited us to trust him, and so we can. We move forward with him. I've got two sons. I've got a beautiful little girl, and I've got two sons. And my sons couldn't be more different. And growing up, they, they were so different even from, from like when they were just like three and four. You could already tell they were, these are such different boys. And I have one boy who uh, like he would jump off the roof because it sounded cool. That sounds fun. He would do anything. And if he saw a swimming pool, he would just like start running from a hundred yards away and just with his eyes closed, dive in without even looking if there's water in there. <laughs> right? Like, and, and then I've got another son. When he was, when he was very, very little, and I've probably, you've probably heard me tell this story before, but he stood on the edge and I was like, it's okay. Jump on in, jump in the pool, jump in the pool. And he's very cautious. And he was like, hmm. I don't know, because you could see him thinking, I could think of all the things that could happen. If you don't catch me, I'm going to sink like a stone, right? And, and it's great, you know, when you have a, a kid who's just got this sort of like reckless trust that the universe is going to take care of him and jump in, whatever happens. But when you have that son or that child who isn't sure, and you see it on his face, like, uh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And yet, they grit their teeth and they jump into their arms. <gasps> what a blessing that is. What a feeling of trust, right? That is faith. You can still show great faith by trusting in God in the midst of your doubts, in the midst. And the power of faith is not that there is no doubt present. The power of faith is that faith disarms our doubts, it disarms the doubts. It makes doubt take a back seat. See? So you got the questions. Well, but, what if? but you make it take the back seat, right? Now, some people will define faith as really something else. And what that something else we could call certainty. Certainty. In fact, I would advise that you can make an idol of certainty. The idol of certainty 
Now listen, I'm just, ta- I'm just talking to some of you today. Some of you are going to be set free from some condemnation, I believe. Some condemnation, religiosity, whatever it is. Um, and, we're, and also, we're not talking about like that gift of faith. There is a gift of faith, by the way, which is, uh, we find more often, often than not, is situational. And there is a situation you find yourself in. And you're believing for something. And you're praying. And you don't, hey, what's going to happen? I don't know. God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to go. And sometimes, ooh, this beautiful, have you ever had this knowing just drop into your soul? And it's like this peace and this surety. God's got this. It's a beautiful thing. And there is no more fear. And you, you jump, right? And that's a beautiful thing. That's a gift of faith. It's a gift of faith. Um, But like I said, it's it's usually situational. It's not just a a continual existence of being, uh, what some people call faith is really just being very stubborn. They're just, they're stubborn uh, and they're very set in their ways. And they're like, well, I'm just a person of faith. But did you know you can, you can kind of worship at this altar of certainty. And actually, if, if we dug down deep, you're more filled with fear than with faith. Because there's a terror of being wrong at, at, the, at the core of that. I'm really, I'm talking to you right now. I hope, I hope you're hearing me. There's a fear. The idea of not being certain for some folks is threatening. It's terrifying. And you can know if this is a ditch into which you have fallen, if the idea of God growing you beyond where you are at right now or showing you areas where you might be wrong, if that idea sounds intolerable, if that sounds terrifying, you might be worshiping at the altar of certainty. The idol of certainty. And by the way, this is true whether, for, whether you're a Christian or an atheist. This idol of certainty is something that we can worship at, right? We can, we can depend on, it has to, I have to be certain, I have to be certain. The idol of certainty, if you are a Christian, it'll stop you in your tracks from maturing in your faith from growing, from being stretched. The idol of certainty can make a person a pompous, judgmental person who just scorns anybody who disagrees with them because I've become certain. So if you disagree with me, there's only one option. You're wrong, right? Meanwhile, what is often going on inside is that we're secretly tormented by things that do happen. Facts that do happen around us. We don't know what to do with them because they don't fit into our little God box, right? We've got this box of certainty. Things don't happen the way we understand reality is supposed to work, the way God's supposed to work, right? Things don't fit in there. So we've got our fingers in our ears going, la, 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 is not happening. This is not happening, right? That's not walking in faith. That's walking in denial, and that's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture, you notice, never denies the facts as they are. It never denies the facts as they are. But rather, faith trusts that God has the last word over those facts. Right? It has the last word, and, and it calls upon things to obey the word of God. Call those things that aren't as though they were. Right? It never says call those things that are as though they weren't. It's an important distinction. Now, listen, you can waffle in your unbelief. You could stand on the side of the pool and just stay there and never step out in faith. And you will stay dry. Right? You'll stay stuck in no man's land. You can stay there. You can choose to stay there. And what are we really doing when we're standing there? We're waiting for certainty. Proof, right? I need all the facts before I can jump. Being a person of faith means being committed to trusting in God completely, even when you don't understand his ways, because you won't. He's God. (laughs) If you understand God, you're no longer talking about God, right? 
you won't understand all of his ways. Even when your prayers aren't answered in the way you wanted them to be answered. I would submit that every prayer is answered, but it's not always the way we, want, we, we wanted it to, right? Because he's not our puppet, right? Faith, faith declares like those three Hebrew children in the book of Daniel, when they stood on top of that fiery furnace, what did they say? Did they say, there's no fire, there's no fire, there's no fire? No. You know what they said? We may burn or we may not, but we will not bow down. That is faith. We're not going to bow. That's faith. And by the way, they didn't burn. <laughs> if you read the story. Amen. Amen. This is important. This is important. Because, because this idea, misunderstanding, uh, this, this, this idol of certainty, this tyranny, I, hate, I detest it, this tyranny of certainty, masquerading as faith, heaps condemnation on people. It's the, it's the voice that comes back at you and says, well, you didn't get the thing because you didn't have enough faith. Right? Should have had more faith. Didn't have enough faith. You had the wrong kind of faith. You must have had a little doubt. That's why you didn't get the thing. It's all your fault, right? It says that really you're the one that, sa that saves you, that heals you. How perfect was your faith. Do you know what the Bible says? It how much faith it takes to move a mountain? A seed. A seed is all it takes to move a mountain. Amen. Amen. All right. So, listen, folks. I some, some people, and I, and I am one of them, uh, for some of us, questioning and wrestling is just part of our DNA. Right? It's just there. It's just always there. It's busy in your brain. You can't turn it off. Sometimes I wish I could. But it's always there, the what, the what ifs and the hows, and how does that really work? How, but, and but God, but what about that time? You know, the the, it's always there. It's always there. It never goes away. And if you misunderstand what faith is, that can lead to condemnation. That can lead to a lot of condemnation because you're never measuring up. There's just something that voice tells you, there's something just basically wrong with you. You can't, you're not a person of faith. It's condemnation. Even when I make the choice uh, to believe and to trust in something, doubt very often is in the back seat. It's always back there in the back seat along for the ride. Faith means not giving doubt control of the wheel. All right? Faith is leaving it back there. And you can, you can. You can say, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to give in to the fears. I'm going to give in to the unbelief. And then you've given it in charge of the wheel. And that's a whole different thing, right? That's not where God wants to take us. But faith is leaving doubt in the back seat where it belongs. All right. So Abraham, he has his questions, and God meets him where he's at. He meets him where he's at. Notice he doesn't smack him upside the head. How dare you doubt the almighty creator God? He doesn't do that. He says, okay, all right, all right. That's where your faith is at right now. I'm going to meet you there. Watch, watch, I'm going to show you. In verse 9, God says to him, all right, bring me a cow, bring me the goat, bring some animals. Abraham immediately recognizes this as sacrifice language. This is sacrifice language. You notice God doesn't tell Abraham what to do with these animals, right? He says, we're going to make a covenant. That's what you did with animals. You, you killed the animal. That's how you made a covenant back then. Abraham didn't have to go to school to learn this. He didn't go to church. He didn't go to VBS and learn how to sacrifice animals. This was, what's interesting here is all God says is bring the animals, and he knows what he means, right? It's like if someone told you, draw up the contract. You know what they mean. You don't have to wonder, do I need to, is that something I paint? Or do I need to sculpt something? No, you're going to go write something, right? He, he doesn't command a sacrifice either. He doesn't give him instructions how to kill them. Animal sacrifice is already well known to Abram. It's part of the culture. It's well known to every culture on the face of the earth. We have to really understand this. When this is happening, every culture on the face of the earth is doing this. Right? So if you're like, uh, if you could transport back in the TARDIS to 2000 BC and, 
and observe Abraham, you'd be like, okay, animal sacrifice. If you went 100 miles to the east to Mesopotamia, guess what they're doing? Animal sacrifice. If you go 100 miles to the west to Egypt, what are they doing? Animal sacrifice. If somehow you went over to South America, whatever they were doing in South America in 2000 BC with the low pyramids or something, animal sacrifice. They're sacrificing. It's what everybody did, right? Any pagan hiding in the bushes would have immediately recognized what Abraham is doing. The point is, what he's doing is not unique. It's not like, this is the biblical way. This is not Christian. It's not Jewish. It's just what you did as a human being in the ancient Near East, 2000 BC. It's also the way humans made contracts with each other. Animal sacrifice, because there's no courts or anything like that. So if you made a contract with somebody and they didn't hold up their end, you can't like take them to court and sue them or something like that or hire a good lawyer. It doesn't exist. So how did you know that the other person is taking it seriously, that they're really going to follow up on what you're agreeing to in this covenant? Is you did the sacrifice. So here is, is this beautiful example of God entering into the language of Abraham. This is what Abraham knows. And God says, I'm, I understand. I understand. He accommodates the universe that Abraham lives in. He, he even shows mercy here for Abraham's doubts. God sees that Abraham needs something familiar to show him how serious that God is about all this. So sacrifice is not God's idea. It's not what he needs to get things done. Sacrifice is an accommodation for our human need for blood, right? Eventually, God is going to bring the, an end to the whole system, right? By doing what? Becoming the sacrifice because <coughs> he meets us where we're at. So he says, all right, bring some animals. Now, remember also, Abraham has already been declared righteous before this, right? So this isn't what Abraham does to get saved, this isn't proving to God that Abraham is righteous and worthy to be a friend of God. He's already been declared a friend. God's already called him friend. So this is really interesting. They were, God declared Abraham a friend before without any need for a covenant. So if you think about it, I mean, you don't need a covenant to be friends, right? You don't need a covenant to be friends. You don't need any kind of contract if you were to go to your friend and go, you know, we've been friends for a long time. If I go to Daniel, he's a good friend of mine. So I say, Daniel, you know, we're, we're almost like best friends, right? I mean, but I've been a little nervous. We haven't put this in writing. <laughs> and um, I don't know how serious you are about me. And, you know, you might not know where I'm coming from. So what if we just put something in writing? We'll do it in blood. It'll be weird, but you know, then you'll know, and I'll really know that you're serious about this, because I'm not sure how dedicated you are to the friendship. You are. No, that would be like an insult, right? Daniel would be insulted that I asked him to put something in writing. Uh, you, you know, he'd be like, you can't trust me? You know what? The, the beauty of this moment is that Abraham has already been declared righteous, and that happens before. He's already been declared a friend of God. That happens before any blood is spilt before there's a covenant made. This is, by the way, hundreds of years before uh, the, the covenant that God makes with Israel, the Levitical laws and the rules and the rituals and the regulations and religion. So that's why in some sense, you know, the new covenant that we have in, in Christ is kind of like, it's almost like the anti-covenant, right? Because it's the new covenant, it's the new way of being that actually just gets us back to just being friends with God. We could look at it visually like this. So before Moses and the law, it was Abraham who was simply called in Scripture, friend of God. Abraham, friend of God. And the thing that sets Abraham apart wasn't any rules he followed. Wasn't that like he was like more ethical than anybody else. He definitely wasn't woke, right? He doesn't understand power imbalances or injustice or anything like this. He's not following any great rules. He had simply faith in God, which is pretty much what our Bible says that our relationship with God is to be based on. Faith, right? We are under covenant of grace that is grace through faith. So all Abraham did was trust God, and he even did that imperfectly, right? He did that imperfectly, just like I am an imperfect friend to Daniel, no doubt. Uh, 
but he had a relationship with God. He had a friendship. And God said, I will credit my righteousness to you because of that. He says, you can't be perfect, Abraham. I'm not looking for a perfect person. And I'm not, I'm not waiting for you to get 100% certainty. I'm not waiting for you to behave 100% saintly. I'm looking for someone who will just trust me and enter into a simple friendship. And when you do that, I know you won't be perfect, but I will draw you into my righteousness. I'll make you spiritually compatible for friendship with Almighty God. I just need you to trust that it's true. Trust that it's true. It's very simple. So Israel, for some time, needed the law. The Bible in the Old Testament language calls them hard-hearted, stiff-necked, right? These are not compliments. And so, you know, when you and, when you and I have a, uh, if you have a strong-willed child, you know, as you might say, you kind of turn up the dial of the rules and the regulations. You know, those kids, they need a lot of routine. They need a lot of strict, clear boundaries. You might have that one kid you don't have to worry about, right? They're just like mature beyond their years. But you have that other kid, and they need the boundaries. They need the rules. It's very important for strong-willed children or all small children. But then God's design has always been for us to get to the point where Christ comes. And Jesus, in fact, says to his disciples, I'm not even going to call you. You're not even servants anymore. I'm calling you friends. He uses Abraham language with his very own disciples. I call you friends. It turns out this is what God has always wanted with us from the beginning. If you go to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, what did he crave in the garden? He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. There's no church. There's no synagogue. There's no big list of rules to follow. He only had one, right? He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He walked with them. So God says, get, get the animals. Let's do this. Abraham gets them and cuts them in half. Uh, as you read through the passage, he says that he lays out the animals, he cuts them in half, lays them on each side of kind of, makes a little lane between them. It's a gruesome scene, and it was kind of meant to be. It was meant to sort of be like, ooh, right? Because what then would happen is in this covenant that was very common, again, these, this is something anybody who was observing would know exactly what these two uh, people were doing. You cut the animals in half, and you walk between them. And what you would say is you would repeat this thing, the historians tell us, is you would say, may this happen to me if I ever break this covenant. May I be like these animals, you know. I'm taking it this seriously. So that's what Abraham is expecting to happen with God. He cuts the animals in two, but then look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. This is God in symbolic form. And I think there's just some beautiful, rich symbology going on here that we don't have time to dissect. But God passes between the animal pieces and he does it without asking Abraham to. The typical ritual was you both did it. But God does it here, and he doesn't ask Abraham to. Abraham's like, okay, it's my turn. It's my turn to walk down. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to do this all myself. Because if this covenant is broken, I'll take that on myself. If you or even your descendants break this covenant, I'm the one that bleeds. I'm the one that bleeds. And he passes through them. Look at verse 18. He says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. The Hebrew literally says he cut a covenant because that's what, what it was. You cut that covenant. Cutting to, to death was always involved in making a covenant. So the Lord meets him right where he's at. All of this is for Abraham's benefit to help, to help his faith. It's for the Lord meets him. He cuts the covenant. One day, generations later, God would cut another covenant with humanity. His own blood would be spilt. And we would become friends again. Amen? Okay, so that's the before. Let's look real quickly at the after. After we're going to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is so great. Oh, there's so much in 
here. There's so much in Ephesians, the whole book. You could do a whole series just on Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to study this passage some more in our home life groups this week. <coughs> Excuse me. So I just want to point out a couple things to kind of get that conversation started uh, with you and your families and your friends this week. In verse 4, there is a great big but God uh, there that we're not going to have time to cover here. Uh, you were enemies of God, but God was rich and in, in mercies and he brought you close. It's a huge but. For the sake of time, we're going to skip down to verse 8. Here's that friendship. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. So this is what Abraham experienced, this gift. It's just by responding through faith that God gives you his grace. You just respond by trusting that it's true. It's not the result of works so that no one may boast. It's not something you're going to achieve by being a perfect person, right? And in verse 10, he says, For we are God's handiwork. Handiwork, it's that Greek word uh, from which we get the word for our word for poem. Isn't that beautiful? We're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We are a handiwork created to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So he saves us, he draws us close, and then he like sculpts and edits us like a little work of art, right? Or his handiwork. He mentors us. He teaches us how to be a blessing. He moves us from that face-to-face relationship to that shoulder-to-shoulder partnership. He doesn't wait for us to be good enough to qualify. He's not waiting for 100% certainty or 100% holiness. In verse 11, so then remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth. Now here, what he's talking about here, just real quickly, the church at the time was, was very clearly divided. There was this huge divide going on. Uh, humanity was clearly divided between the Jews and the Gentiles. Gentile just meant you weren't Jew. Uh, so it was like everybody else. So, so most of us would be in that category. Um, and that was the all-important religio-ethnic divide at the time he's using this language. So he's talking to the Gentiles in, in the next few verses. He's saying, look, I know you've felt separated from God. You've kind of been treated like second class. I know the people of God have always participated in that separation, looking down on you. They would call, you know, they would call the, the Gentiles the uncircumcised. Um, and he says here, that's what Israel would call the Gentiles. It was kind of code for uncivilized, uncircumcised, uncivilized. That's who you guys are. You're the uncivilized barbarians. You don't know the civilized, the law of God. And God says, I realize that you've been kept at a distance. And this is very, very true. Because at the time, what we're told is many Gentiles in the Roman world, throughout, even outside of Israel, many Gentiles were coming to know this God of the Jews. They were coming to know Yahweh. They were getting to know more about the God of Israel, learning their scriptures, learning their stories, and becoming convinced that this God really is the one true God. But conversion back then was kind of a tricky thing. Because even then, conversion at its core, Judaism was an ethnically based religion, right? It's ethnically based. And so you could become a supporter, even a convert, an ally, but you weren't Jewish yet, you know, ever, right? You were always kind of this second-class citizen, even in the synagogue. You weren't, if you, if you weren't born a Jew, you couldn't be born, be born into it. You were always on the outside looking in. And so they would consider you like an ally, but not, you couldn't be one of them. Even in the synagogue, you sat in the back row. They called, the Jews had a word for these Gentiles who came to know the God of the Yahweh, as they called them the Gentile God-fearers. And they sat over here, and they were separate, and they were always separate. They're always second class. And so emotionally, this passage has a huge impact for these guys, because Christianity comes along, and there is a radical new message that there is no more Jew or Gentile. Whoa, what? Right? There is no more of these hierarchical power imbalances, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. This does, this is a huge revolutionary step right? And look what Paul has to say in verse 13. But now, there's our but, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God has cut a new covenant for he himself is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one. He's broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. Verse 15, let's just keep going. 
He says, he has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances, its rules, its regulations, its routine, its religion, all that kind of stuff, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. He might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross. This is revolutionary language. One body through the cross, thus putting to death the hostility, killing the hostility through it. (laughs) One thing I love about this new covenant, he reserves his most violent language here to describe how he has ended the cycle of violence, right? He is this It's like God launches this hostile force against hostility itself, right? He has crushed the wall, the dividing wall. He's crushed it, that wall that divided you on the cross. So Jesus not only died to save us from our sins, he died to save us from our religion. He died to save us from the wall between us. He crushes whatever wall you've built up or that others have built up for you. All those walls that made you feel like separated, that made you feel second class, like you can never quite be that. He crushed that wall that separates you from intimacy with the Almighty, that wall that makes you feel inferior. He's crushed that wall. He's called you friend. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to wonder. I was talking to a good friend just this weekend, and they were like, I still struggle with that idea of you know, knowing, am I, am I still in? Am I good with God? Am I going to make it to heaven? You know, do I still, do I need to come up to the altar every time? You don't have to wonder. You don't, right? Because he's called you friend. He has crushed the wall. You don't have to keep rescaling the wall. It's not there. So whatever it is in your life that has made you feel second class, Jesus died to crush the wall. Amen. And we keep trying to rebuild it over time, Right? Because that's what we do. We're human beings, either in our institutions or just us personally. We rebuild the wall in our own mind. And then we come back to the cross and we discover it afresh, destroyed. The wall's gone. We're reminded again, the veil is torn. The waters are parted. And we, as the church, are called to do what? To partner with God, to partner with Jesus in keeping that wall gone, right? We are not called to be God's enforcers. We're not called to be his executioners or his defenders. No, we are his partners in crushing the walls that keep people out. That's our calling. So I want to apply this to our lives this morning to make it very personal. What in your life makes you emotionally You can relate to these Gentiles who read this passage in the first century. What in your life has made you feel like I'm on the outside looking in? Seems like no matter what I do, I just, I can't shake that feeling I'm on the outside looking in. What has kept you at a distance? We all have it. For some of you, it might be like uh, painful childhood memories something like that. For many of us, it's something operating in our, ho- in our life right now. It's something that maybe recently happened or that we're going through right now or just something. Even if it is a memory, it still has power, right? Making us feel like I'm just, I'm never going to be one of the cool kids, right? Sometimes you come to church and you think, ah, some people are just, they're such insiders, right? I envy them. And there's always that group there and I just feel like I'll never be a part of that. And maybe that's happening in your relationship with God. It could be your gender, what people have told you. As a woman, this is as far as you can go. Um, It could be your age. You know, you're too old. You're too young. It could be your ethnicity. It could be your, your body type, right? I've talked to people. I know it's a real thing. Just, I'm I'm the wrong shape. (laughs) It could be a disability, an illness, your marital status. This, this happened or it didn't happen. And now I feel eternally marked by it. You might have a sexual orientation that you've never spoken 
or some deep secret you have, something you've kept private, you've kept locked away for so many years that even, so when someone says, God loves you, he accepts you, you're like, you tell yourself, well, not really, not with this secret that I'm keeping. That is the wall that Jesus wants to crush for you so that you can have a place of belonging. He wants to crush it. He's not just going to help you over the wall. He crushes the wall. Right? So today, if you've made that decision to, to trust in Jesus and you've made him your Lord, if you haven't, you can do that right now. You can make that decision right there where you're sitting. I'm there. I'm trusting in you, Lord. But if you have already made that decision, I want us to declare something out loud. I want to just declare something what God says about us. What God says is true. So as you're sitting there, uh, hopefully you're sitting there and maybe you're thinking of that thing. Maybe you've got something in mind. Whatever it is, however personal or painful. It might be something that's kind of silly. might be silly to other people. It might be something that's really dark. And it stands, it's that thing that stands in between, the way of between you and feeling completely accepted, you and feeling completely loved, fully belonging in the family of God. It might be, you know, I'm fat, or I've got a big nose, or it might be, I'm a coward. I'm not good enough. Or it might be, I've got this secret that's just too, uh, I'm carrying around, it's too shameful to let anybody know about. No matter what that thing is, that thing is trying to exalt itself above the name of Jesus. It tries to exalt itself above as greater than the name of Jesus. And what matters is what you are going to believe today is greater. What will you believe today is greater? Not what are you good enough about? Have you gotten all your ducks in a row? What do you believe is greater? That truth about you? It might be true. I don't know. Or are you going to believe God's truth about you? And so today we're going to declare God's truth together. If you have somebody, if you're somebody who, who's put your faith in Christ, you would say, yeah, I, I have, but this thing is, is, is always there. I want to say this together. So you're, you just are going to fill in the blank with your name. I'm going to say Scott. Don't say Scott, unless your name is Scott. <laughs> you fill in that with your name, and then we'll say the rest of it together, okay? We're going to say it all together. Here we go. Let's do it. My name is Scott, and I am welcomed by God into this family. I am surrounded by brothers and sisters who are here for me, and I am in communion with the one who loves me completely. Now listen, this isn't just some like measly self-affirmation thing, okay? This is a declaration of ultimate truth. This is ultimate truth. You are welcomed by God into this family, right? So I can declare this for myself, uh, even if sometimes my family uh, acts like they don't want me here. My father steps in and says, hey, hey, you belong here. Come on. Come on inside. I am surrounded by brothers and sisters who are here for me. Yeah, we're going to do it imperfectly. We're not going to be perfect. I wish we were all perfect and never made each other upset or anything like that. But we're going to do it imperfectly. But that's what we're called to experience together. We're not called to uniformity. We are called to unity. We're going to do it imperfectly. But we're going to do it. And I am in communion with the one, the one who created me, the one who loves me completely, right? This is my life. This is who I am. Christ has died in my place. He's broken down the dividing wall. And I have a place to belong, right? So we're going to say this one more time. Let's say it with a lot of gusto. Here we go. Ready? Here we go. My name is Scott, and I am welcomed by God into this family. I am surrounded by brothers and sisters who are here for me, and I'm in communion with the one who loves me completely. Amen. That, that is good liturgy right there, church. All right? Amen. Amen. We are going to take communion together now. And uh, this is our chance. Thank you so much, sir. This is our chance to, 
experientially uh, celebrate what Christ has done for us, right? You can be getting that ready if you came in with the elements there. And uh, if you're home, you can be getting uh, the bread and the juice for yourself. I'm going to read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body that is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So by the way, if you're here with us today, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, please feel welcome to join in on this with us. We don't care what denomination or church you belong to. Uh, We are united in Christ. If you're here today and you've never done this before, but listening to this, you're like, I want to do this. I want in. I want, I would like to join in and participate. Say, I want to take this next step with Jesus. I want to be a part of communion of the believers this morning. Then we welcome you to join in with us. And if you're here and you're just kind of feeling like you're still exploring this whole Jesus thing and you're investigating what it means to follow Jesus and you'd prefer not to take it, uh, absolutely, please feel no pressure to join in with us. Um, But know this, if that is you, there's always a seat for you at the Lord's table. You don't have to do it today, but there's always a seat. It's kept ready for it whenever you're ready. You don't need a reservation. You don't have to dress up. You don't have to get your act together first. You just have to come to the table hungry for whatever it is the Lord wants to feed you. And he gives us himself. We come hungry for himself. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you, Lord, first for Jesus. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for your gift of grace. We trust that it's true. We put our faith in you. Lord Jesus, we... We now take this bread, we take this cup in remembrance of you. Lord, may our hearts just be filled with your spirit more and more each day. We thank you that you have brought us close into your family. You've given us a home. We belong. There are no more walls that separate us, Father, from you or or from each other. I ask that this week, Lord, that you would just continue to remind us of this beautiful truth that we can live out the, the joy of our belonging in the name of the crucified and resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. We do this not out of grief, but in joy. Amen. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. This is the hope that we have. This is our hope of glory right here that Christ has died, that he is risen, and he will come again. Stand to your feet right now. If there's uh, something you want to let us know about, we have a lot of uh, different ways you can send us your prayer requests. We have a whole prayer chain of folks who would love to stand in faith with you about that. Amen. So, my friends, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance to you and remind you this week, you are belong. Grace and peace. Bye-bye.